0: Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you.
1: Please welcome our host, Dr. Niall Gardner, Director of Heritage's Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom and Bernard and Barbara Lomas Fellow.
2: Very much. A very a warm a welcome to our audience uh, here at Heritage and also online on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, and uh, Andrew, it's, it's wonderful to have you here with us uh, in in Washington. I think you just got in a couple of days ago uh, here in the United States. And um, I think I've known you now, Andrew, for about a quarter of a century. We, I think we were first introduced back uh, back in the, the days of, of Norman Stone as the um, professor of modern history at Oxford. Uh, and uh, Uh, And, Andrew, you've you've been, without a doubt, I think, one of the most influential uh, British historians of the modern era, Uh, not only, of course, in in print, but also in broadcast media. And you've been, I think, since the funeral of Princess Diana, the NBC uh, royal broadcaster. uh, And, you know, you're known to to millions of American television viewers. Uh, And... um, and you've had, you know, a very, very distinguished uh, record as a um, not only as a historian but also a broadcaster and political commentator as well on on many, many different issues. Uh, and it's a real privilege, of course, to talk to you today about your your new book, the Last King of America. Uh, and in fact, you just won, I believe, the the literary prize. Uh, from the General Society of Colonial Wars, the Distinguished Book Award, and uh, congratulations on that, uh, Andrew. Thank you. Uh, and I should mention, actually, that Andrew, in fact, interned in Washington back in 1984 for the Senate Steering Committee, which I believe still exists, actually, uh, and an exceptionally sound uh, committee. So, uh, so your your experience of Washington goes back several. Several decades, and I think you uh, you worked for Jesse Helms actually when he was the uh, the chairman of that of that uh, that committee. So welcome back to Washington, uh, Andrew. Uh, and also, Andrew, you've been uh, you know a counsel to to numerous presidents and prime ministers, uh, including George W. Bush. You you've given you gave him a lot of advice when he was president. Um, my former boss Margaret Thatcher was was a big admirer of your of your books, especially the History of the English Speaking Peoples. Uh, And you were appointed by by Lady Thatcher uh, to the Margaret Thatcher Archive uh, Trust, a real uh, distinguished honor. Uh, And you were without a doubt, I think, one of Lady Thatcher's very, very favorite uh, historians. Uh, And uh, we're we're delighted uh, here at the Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom, uh, Lady Thatcher's official think tank center, to be be hosting you today. Uh, And um, Andrew, I'm going to ask you, a few questions about your latest book, but also um, would would love to get your your thoughts um, on on a number of other issues as well. I mean, you, your last book, of course, was on Winston Churchill, um, and I'll have questions also about um, uh, Meghan Markle and the the current uh, the current state of the British British monarchy, the future of the British monarchy, and one or two questions as well about Brexit and. Um, also the situation with U.S.-U.K. leadership on the world stage. So a very wide-ranging discussion uh, today. Uh, so I hope, hope you're prepared for uh, all sorts of questions, Andrew. So- <laughs> well, thank you very much
0: indeed, Niall. You've made me feel very old, um, <laughs> apart from anything else. But, uh, but okay, let's, uh, let's kick
2: off. Thanks right. again. And, um, Andrew, um, I have to say that George III is not exactly the most popular figure in the United States. I mean, he, <laughs> he has a, a rather bad sort of press over here, and... Um, you know, if anyone's in need of a good sort of PR agency, it's George III, probably, in the United States. Uh, what actually uh, inspired you to write this book? And it, it is, I have to say, um, an extremely detailed, uh, thoroughly researched book. It's, it's around 700 pages, I think, uh, Andrew. And um, this is a, a real work of art. And uh, what drove you to, to write this book?
0: Uh, well, thank you very much. Um- <laughs> It is 700 pages, but as I was uh, explaining earlier, about a third of it is the paraphernalia that you uh, have at the back, and therefore it's not too off-putting, hopefully, when you actually read it. Uh, I've been writing about 18th century and early 19th century subjects for some time. I've wrote a biography of Napoleon and, and the Battle of Waterloo and Wellington and things like that, and it's always struck me that... King George III has been fundamentally misunderstood, um, not just here in America, but also in Britain, where for 200 years the weak historians essentially made him out to be the same kind of uh, of, um, murderous tyrant that one gets in, uh, of course, the Declaration of Independence, but also in Lin-Manuel Miranda's um, Hamilton the Musical. And he wasn't like that at all. Um, Her Majesty the Queen has put some 100,000 pages of his private uh, documents and archives and correspondence and so on onto um, the, uh, into the public uh, arena using King's College London and the Royal Archives. And from these pages, one sees that actually he was an extremely uh, charming, good-natured, um, highly intelligent, enlightened individual. Somebody who was uh, immensely cultured. and uh, and not at all the uh, the sort of murderous sadist of uh, of
2: myth. So, um, you know, your your portrayal of George III, of course, is is, uh, strikingly different to conventional wisdom. Uh, And George III, of course, recently was portrayed uh, in the the highly successful, I think, 1994 film, The Madness of King George, uh, Ralph Richardson, Played played the king uh, and um, it was nominated I think for 14 BAFTAs for uh, Academy Awards as well. Um, <clears throat> what what's your response to those who say that uh, you know George III was just completely batty and mad and and what what, um, what did they get wrong in their depiction of George III in the film? Um,
0: everything they. Uh, <laughs> They managed to, and it's perfectly understandable because for half a century, people have thought that he had porphyria, this uh, physiological disease, whereas in fact, uh, as is very clear from my uh, the appendix of my book, uh, it wasn't that at all. We get that sense because half a century ago, a uh, mother and son medical team gave completely misleading symptoms to the doctors who came up with this concept of porphyria, in fact. Um, and. I I'm afraid this isn't necessarily much fun for a family audience but, like yours, but um, it's basics, uh, based on the colour of the king's faeces and urine, and, um, and it wasn't Porphyria. He had actually the type 1, effective type 1A of, uh, of um, bipolar disorder. And now that we've got past all of the, uh, you know, we've managed to destigmatize mental illness, um, thankfully, finally, um, we don't blame him any longer in the same way that the Whig historians did for so long um, for, uh, for his own madness. And uh, it, was a, it was a debilitating and tragic uh, disease and uh, had nothing to do with the American Revolution, owing to the fact that uh, he didn't have any outbreaks of it between 1765 and, um, and 1788, five years after America had uh, had been established. So, um, all of the things, basically, that we think about George III, that he had Porphyria, that this and his obstinacy led to the American Revolution, and also that he was a tyrant, all of these things are wrong.
2: Andrew, your book has already received a lot of attention in, in the UK, and. Uh, I would say, overwhelmingly very positive reviews in, in Britain. Um, how do you think it's going to be received here in the United States? Well,
0: today is the second day of my five-week book tour, so you're, you're asking very early on um, this. Uh, I'll be able to tell you much better <laughs> by Christmas. Um, and like the First World War, it will be over by Christmas. Um, but the, uh, I think overall, you know, America is a mature democracy. It's going to be able to face the fact that, in fact, it's an um, extremely exceptional country because, and I think American exceptionalism is, is proved by the story of George III, because any number of countries have attempted to, uh, and have succeeded, in gaining their freedom and independence from an oppressive regime. You can think of the Israelites against the Egyptians, the Dutch against the Spanish, the... Italians against the Austrians, the Greeks against the Turks, you name it. It's, it's a well-known and well-established trope of history. What America did, on the other hand, was exceptional because it actually demanded its independence and sovereignty from a country that was not tyrannizing it. There was no, there was no um, actual oppression. It was one of the freest countries of the world in uh, uh, the 1760s and 1770s. And yet they still wanted their independence, and this was because it was the right time for America. You had 2.5 million people, you had a burgeoning economy growing at about 6% a year, you had more bookshops in Philadelphia than in any other city in the Empire, and you had no external threat once the French had been expelled from the continent at the time of the Treaty of Paris. So. It was the right time for America to demand its independence. And obviously, it it needed, for sheer wartime propaganda reasons, to uh, create this myth of an oppressive tyrant king. Uh, In fact, there were plenty, any number of tyrants in the late 18th century. One looks at uh, at, uh, Catherine the Great of Russia, what the French were doing in uh, Corsica, the Spanish in Louisiana, and so on, Prussians, and... um, and George III did none of that. He didn't arrest any editors. He didn't re- stop the Stamp Act Congress or the First Continental Congress. He didn't uh, close down newspapers. He only stationed troops in one city in Boston from 1768. And, uh, and these, are, these are, you know, he, he allowed the, the common law system to, uh, to work and the taxes that he asked for, including the Stamp Act, Uh, were incredibly low I mean they were like the equivalent of two shillings and sixpence per American per year so actually I think it's a tremendously um, uh, if I were an American I'd be immensely proud of the fact that they uh, that that America grabbed its independence because it wanted its independence and um, and its self-government not because it was it was being oppressed which it wasn't being
2: so he was um, a far more enlightened ruler than than his critics have uh, have claimed. Uh, and uh, uh, if um, <coughs> if George III had actually uh, won the um, the American War of Independence, um, what do you think the you know the future would have held for for America? And would a successive king or queen have um, uh, have have granted America independence, uh, say you know in the 19th uh, century. So um, what what would have happened if, if the British had actually won that war?
0: Well, if you you have um, Canada, of course, as a template for which becomes self-governing in 1830. Um, so so that would have happened. I mean, there was of course the um, the whole issue of slavery, which would have uh, would have undoubtedly led to some kind of a clash, uh, there was also um, very much a sense that it was coming as I say the the um, American independence was a uh, an unstoppable force, I think um, it was next to impossible to win that war over three thousand miles anyway, especially with the germane plan um, the the strategic plan that the British imposed. Um, the admirals and the generals um, hated each other. The, um, the most of the British bureaucracy didn't get on uh, with each other. There were any numbers of problems, but these were not the King's fault. You know, this was the government's fault. This was Lord North and the, and the cabinet. But ultimately if the English pe- peoples had stayed together in the, in the late 18th century and continued, if the, um, uh, by the time of the first world war, it would have been impossible for the Germans to have uh, started that war. Um, because the uh, combined power of, uh, of Britain and America today would have, uh, then would have been impossible to have stood up against. So you don't get a First World War or the Bolsheviks or the, uh, the Nazis. The world would have been a much happier place. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, in your view, Andrew, did George III in any way transform the, uh, the monarchy? And uh, is there a lasting impact today from... You know, from his his approach uh, as as king, very much. yes. Yeah.
0: the modern monarchy um stems much more from George the Third than from Queen Victoria in yeah. my view. um when one looks at um at the modern monarchy and think that um George the Third, Bought, the, uh, bought Buckingham Palace, bought the gold stage coach, bought, started the walkabouts, uh, started the um, whole concept of kings and queens all being buried at Windsor, which he was the first person since Charles I to be. Um, he, was, uh, he invented the trooping of the colour. And then personally, he was a frugal monarch. When one thinks of the present queen, uh, and then think George III was a frugal monarch, financially prudent... Driven almost entirely by a sense of duty and hard work, that is the queen today, uh, so yes I think he's uh, I think probably his his um, legacy is in the modern monarchy more than anywhere else
2: yes and um, <coughs> this is a good uh, juncture now to to switch to to the monarchy in modern times and um, and of course the uh, the monarchy has been under a lot of fire uh, in in recent months in fact we we did a um, uh, a public event here at Heritage a few, few months ago, entitled "The Crown Under Fire," um, talking about uh, largely Meghan Markle's uh, attacks on on the monarchy. And um, how damaging do you think that uh, Meghan Markle's uh, uh, attacks or critiques of the monarchy have 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 been?
0: Well, they're, they're pretty serious in America, um, but they're not at all. Um taken terribly seriously in in Britain. Um, I mean the very fact that she didn't name this racist um, uh, who, who made these racist remarks in um, the Oprah Winfrey interview makes some people wonder whether or not she was telling the truth. Um, there are other things uh, that we see from this um, Daily Mail um, huge uh, Daily Mail um, jury trial that um, make it clear that she has not been telling the truth about several important aspects of the relationship she had with her biographers. And so um, people who, who follow these things are, I think, starting to see a different aspect to her. Um, but I don't think in Britain they, she's going to cause much trouble. I tell you where she is going to cause some trouble, here in America. Um, because I can see um very clearly her um, use of her royal status or former royal status, being used um, in in uh, American politics, specifically on the side of the Democratic party. Uh, Her recent telephoning of senators calling herself the Duchess of Sussex and saying that uh, American taxpayers should pick up $1 trillion in paternity leave uh, payments is something that I think uh, you're going to have to deal with an awful lot more than than, uh, anything we're going to have to worry about.
2: Yes, it's striking how, um, well, firstly, just how popular the the monarchy is in the United States. And uh, I think Gallup does fairly regular polling on US attitudes towards the Queen and uh, the Queen generally has an approval rating around 70% or so among Americans, which is far, far higher than most US Presidents, um, including of course uh, Joe Biden, whose approval rating now is around 40%. Uh, I thought it was much lower than that. And uh, yeah, I, I, think, I think Biden's actually fallen as low as you know, 37, 38 um, in some polls. Uh, So so the Queen remains an incredibly uh, well-respected, admired figure uh, in in the United States. Um, What what do you think the future of the monarchy will be uh, in the era that succeeds Queen Elizabeth II, and she is now 95 years old, um, when Prince Charles ascends to the throne as king? Do you think that the, the image or the, the popularity of the, the monarchy uh, is going to um, be, uh, be impacted in a significant way on, on both sides of the, of the Atlantic?
0: I really don't, know. I see the uh, monarchy as being, a, one of its strengths is that it's just such a, a continually evolving story that when one chapter closes, another one opens, and, um, and so it doesn't need to worry about rasmuscle whole results, um, unless both political or one political party actually embraced republicanism with a small r, which is not about to happen any time soon. So um, I think also when you look further on, you see prince william and uh, and Kate who are tremendously popular and actually Prince Charles an awful lot of the things that Prince Charles has been saying over the years have come to pass you know he's he is seen as somebody who uh, who's sticks his neck out occasionally he won't be able to do that as king obviously because constitutionally he won't be able to um make those same kind of, um, of statements but nonetheless he there is a there is a a place for him in the hearts of the British people whether there is in america i'm i I doubt, frankly, people haven't come round yet. Also, to um, the Duchess of Cornwall, who is in fact a magnificent woman, but Americans don't seem to appreciate her. So, um, all in all, I think that you know the the institution is uh, going to um, going to be fine. Um, and then, uh, when Prince William and, and Kate become king and queen, will uh, become more popular again.
2: That's very encouraging to hear, Andrew. Uh, and uh... Your, your previous book uh, before, uh, your latest book on George III, was um, Churchill Walking with, with Destiny, and, uh, which, I, which I think is, is an absolutely uh, magnificent addition to the scholarship on, on Churchill. And um, in your view, would you regard Churchill as the, as the greatest prime minister of modern times?
0: Yes, even at the Margaret Thatcher Centre at uh, Heritage Foundation, I would go so far as to say that, uh, Niall, um, absolutely, um, followed closely by, um, by Margaret Thatcher herself.
2: And, um, and by the way, sorry, yes.
0: in Britain, he's yes. under enormous attack at yes, the moment. Yes, you know. yes. I mean, there isn't a day goes by when you don't get some, some article or some new book or some uh, uh, idiot with a spray can attempting to, um, to attack the image of, uh, of Winston Churchill. Uh, earlier this year, we actually had, at Churchill College, Cambridge, of all places, a conference in which four uh, academics each tried to better each other about being hateful and, um, and deeply unhistorical as well about Winston Churchill until one of them actually said that he was as bad as Hitler and none of the other people on the panel uh, took issue with that so we're at a stage which is frankly um, only just this side of insane uh, in uh, in Britain the great thing about it though is that 80 Five to ninety percent of the population think this is rubbish, and um, and love Churchill just as much as ever they did.
2: Yes, yeah, no, it's astonishing all of these uh, um, scurrilous attacks on on Churchill that we're seeing in in the UK and and also in the United States as well uh, on on the sort of far left, uh, and um, uh, and with regard to this, you know, this this charge that that you're seeing from left wing academics, um, especially in the UK, that you know Churchill was a you know, was a racist. Uh, what, what's your response to that?
0: Well, in and of itself, of course it's true that he did believe that there was a hierarchy of the races. He was born in uh, at a time when Charles Darwin was still alive and when that was considered scientific fact. Um, but he never... Um, did anything unpleasant? He never wanted anything unpleasant to happen to non-white people, which is also a uh, pretty much, I think, a definition of racist. Uh, he went out of his way to, um, of course, fight for the abolition of slavery in the River War. Um, he, again and again, when he was Under Secretary for the Colonies, he put the um, well-being of the native peoples above those of the uh, white settlers. He had a um, a tremendous uh, record of, um, of, you know, helping the Afridi, uh, sorry, the um, Punjabi tribesmen um, who were being attacked from the, across the northwest frontier by the Talib and the, uh, and the Afridis, you know, so actually what he did was, was um, prove that he did believe that black lives matter. Whereas um, he did also make uh, jokes that today we would consider completely unacceptable. You know, we know the idea of a hierarchy of the races is absurd and obscene, um, but, uh, but he didn't.
2: And uh, the, the issue of the of course the culture wars in, in the UK are sort of front and centre now. Um, and he's
0: at the front line of yes. the front wars. But then
2: he'd be perfectly happy about that because he was always yeah. in the front line of every war. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, uh, of course, Boris Johnson is um, a big admirer of of Winston Churchill, and he, he's written a wrote a very successful um, book, The Churchill Factor. And uh, and the British government really is is fighting back against uh, cancel culture, uh, against critical race theory, uh, against the sort of left's um, you know kind of cultural uh, agenda. And do do you think that? Um, they're going to succeed in this fight? It's very closely watched, of course, here in, in the United States, especially among U.S. conservatives, are looking at what the British conservative government is doing on all of these issues. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and so there are a lot of lessons, of course, for, for the U.S., but do you think that the Johnson government is going to su- succeed, actually, in rolling back the tide of... Of, of left-wing, you know, on British history and, and British culture?
0: It's very difficult to tell because um, you're right that the government um, hates and despises all this wokery. However, we've been in power now for 10 years. You know, there have been 10 years of Conservatives uh, either being the largest power or the only um, uh, only part of the government. And, um, and what's happened? You know, we, we still have these, these sort of um, things crop up. Endlessly, you know, statues that are being attacked and uh, um, and uh, curriculums being so-called de-colonised um, and uh, um, you know, so actually just winning the um, elections doesn't seem to help and. Um, and that's a worry, because ultimately, we're not going to win all elections forever. <laughs> and so um, it's going to get so much worse when, um, when Labour get, into, get back yes. into, into power. Um, so, no, I'm very, um, I'm very concerned. We, by the way, are watching you. Don't think it's all one way. When um, uh, Mr. Youngkin won in Virginia, it was front page news in, in Britain, because it was uh, seen as a, um, as a victory against wokery. Yeah. Um, it, was, it was seen as, uh, as parents rising up and, and saying, enough is enough. Yes. And that's something that we very much wanted to have in, uh, in Britain as well.
2: Yeah, very significant. As you point out, the, the number one issue, I think, in the Virginia election uh, was the issue of uh, critical race theory in schools. Uh, and, um, uh, and I expect it's going to continue to be a very, very large uh, issue uh, in the, the midterm elections and even the presidential election, the issue of you know, political indoctrination of, of children by, by the far left using sort of Marxist ideas. And, uh, and it strikes me the American people uh, are standing up to that now in a major way as we saw in Virginia. Uh, and um, Andrew, a couple of last questions. And I'm going to invite questions from the audience. But um, a question on uh, American leadership on the world stage in the wake of what can only be described as the catastrophic uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan and uh, and Joe Biden's uh, abysmal handling of that. Um, How big has the damage been? How significant is the damage to America's image in the United Kingdom uh, and, and on the world stage? And after all, this was really the humiliation of a superpower.
0: Incredibly profound um, is the answer. Any friend of uh, Britain, um, uh, sorry, any friend of America in Britain, like me, um, has found it very, um, very difficult, frankly, after those chaotic scenes at, uh, at Kabul Airport, because um, anti-Americans who are who are always there in Britain um, hold up this as an example of why uh, American imperium is uh, is the days are numbered. Um, that there's. Uh, um, a, um, a sort of sell by date to american hegemony and um, and frankly, an awful lot of people on the left would love that to, uh, to end uh, to the point that they're willing to close their eyes to the totalitarianism in China um, to actually you know, bring on the, the day early and It strikes me that when uh, if that should ever happen, if you should have a moment uh, when America loses its primacy in the world, when when the um, dollar is no longer the reserve currency or and so on, you're going to go through the uh, five stages of, uh, of the Kubler-Ross grief cycle, You've already starting with, with denial, one can see that already, then you're going to have an, a stage of anger, I wouldn't be surprised if that does happen at the time of the midterms or the next general yes. election. Um, you're going to have an attempt at negotiation, but you can see already the way the Chinese attempt to, the way they negotiate is, uh, is I'm afraid, much tougher than your diplomats are doing. You're going to have a sense of extreme, um, um, the, the, the fourth stage of the cycle is um, uh, depression. And, um, and maybe an economic depression as well as a, uh, a metaphysical sense of depression which I think will hit this uh, country terribly hard when it realizes for the first time since the 1890s it's not the, the primary uh, nation in the world. Um, and then finally, and the most dangerous moment of the lot, frankly, is acceptance. When you get to that fifth stage of the Kubler-Ross um, grief cycle, then it's all over for America. And that must not happen, you know, you must, as a nation, get yourselves together, because it's not just yourselves you're, you're uh, standing up for, it's um, timeless concepts, the concepts of the founders, uh, you're standing up for me and Britain and all of your allies and the people who, who trust in you and, and believe in you. And, um, and right now, all I can see in the, uh, um, thinking as an historian, all I can see uh, for the future of the world is negative.
2: It's a very damning indictment, I think, of of U.S. leadership or the lack of it at the moment. Uh, How much harm has been done under the present U.S. administration to the us uk special relationship? After all, the Biden presidency has been very critical of Brexit. It's issued threats over the Northern Ireland Protocol. Um, Senate Democrats issued another threat over the weekend. Uh, against the, the UK, threatening to sink a US-UK free trade agreement if uh, the British government invokes Article 16 on the the Northern Ireland uh, Protocol issue. Um, this is an administration that has not been uh, very friendly towards the United Kingdom. Well, and let's
0: remember what President Obama said as well about being sending Britain to the back of the queue, yeah. um, the back of the line, essentially. Um, Yes, no, we, we um, can't hold up much, much hope for um, any kind of uh, friendly uh, coexistence with the Biden administration. You're absolutely right. And, uh, but the thing is that actually, funny enough, when President Obama made that threat against, uh, against Britain over Brexit, um, the numbers for Brexit went up. Yes. Um, so you have to remember that simply being threatened and bullied tends not to work with, with Britain, or at least with Britain's... And it certainly won't work with Bar- Boris Johnson. Yes. Um, so I think that, um, that actually that's a, it was a very um, stupid thing for uh, President Biden to have done with regard to Article 16. Because Article 16 is an inherent part of the agreement. Yeah. You know, it's not as though you're making some kind of... He, I don't believe that he understands the Irish situation yeah. of the, in, in the modern sense of it. Uh, he might have when he went into politics back in the 1970s, when it was very different. Um, but uh, but today, the idea of the um, of the you know Sinn Fein going back to the blankets and and letting off bombs because um, of um, the the checking and testing of uh, of um, European goods coming through the across the uh, Irish border is completely ludicrous. You know, so I'm afraid he's stuck in a time warp here. And um, it's, uh, it's going to be something we just have to wait out. Nobody's expecting a free trade agreement during the Biden administration.
2: Yes. Yeah, I, th- I think that that is the, um, you know, the unfortunate state of affairs at, at the moment. And uh, it's very significant that we, um, we actually hosted um, Nikki Haley just a few days ago for the Margaret Thatcher Freedom Lecture, and she voiced her wholehearted support for for Brexit, which he thought was absolutely tremendous, not only for Britain, but also for America as well, and also her support for a uh, US-UK uh, free trade agreement. And so there are many conservatives here in the United States who are uh, standing shoulder to shoulder with, with Great Britain in the Brexit era. And my last question for you- Well, hang on, can, uh, can I just- uh, go, go ahead, go ahead. Talking yeah. about Brexit, yeah. um, and, and, yeah. and
0: thank you for those um, those kind words, but you know, it's already proved to be the right thing to have done. Had Britain uh, been in the European Medical Agency, we would not have been able to have got our vaccines um, as early as we did. Mm -hmm. The European Medical Agency essentially um, centralised that whole process and were incredibly slow. They refused to take any risks. They didn't go to enough pharmaceutical companies. They didn't put any money into it. Boris Johnson was able, because of Brexit, therefore, to do all the things that he did to make Britain the third... Um, fastest vaccinated country to 80% of our population in the yep. world and thereby saved, well, some, some um, uh, political commentators think more than 10,000 lives, others think uh, fewer, but roughly... Ten thousand people are alive today because of Brexit, who wouldn't have been yes. if uh, Remain had won. Yeah. So it's not just a question of airy fairy stuff to do with um, with um, you know trade deals and so on, or anything to do with uh, um, these Remain concepts of of um, you know kumbaya um, happier to, as being part of the European Union. It's nothing to do with that. It's actually to do with people who are alive today who would not be were it not for Brexit.
2: Yes. Yes. Excellent points, Andrew. And it's striking how um, on the, if you look at the Ukraine and Belarus fronts at the moment uh, in, in Europe, um, it's Brexit Britain uh, out of all of the European powers who are stepping forward offering the strongest support for both Ukraine uh, and for Poland in the face of, of Russian intimidation. Uh, and. It's an example of of how Britain is uh, projecting far greater power actually in the Brexit uh, era. And uh, in fact, my last question was going to be about Brexit and um, and what do you think the outlook is going to be for for Britain as a as a sort of resurgent uh, power globally. Well, I think
0: it, what we can do now, of course, is decouple from um, from the uh, European based. Um, Security concepts, where I mean, you only have to look at Nord Stream to realise that uh, Nord Stream Two, to realise that um, the uh, most of the Europeans just will always put um, short-term interests first, and they don't care about the. Ultimately, they don't care about the freedom of countries like uh, like Ukraine, Britain, America, um, the uh, the Anglo-Sphere, as it were, are much more concerned about these uh, these fundamental rights. It strikes me. And so a Brexit Britain is going to be able to be closer to America um, and to the other um, Anglo-Sphere countries than a Remain Britain would have been able to have been. Um, And uh, and when you look at uh, at France, you know um, France, um, France is always there when uh, when they need you. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Yes. (laughs) Um, Well, very significant because the French are. Knifing Britain actively in the back on the uh, on the migration issue in the Channel at, at the moment.
0: Yes, but that's all a payback for AUKUS, of course, <laughs>
2: <laughs> which uh, which uh, still still
0: makes every patriotic Englishman happy. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yes, one one of the rare good moves actually by by the Biden administration, the the orcus uh, Pact, and and uh, as you know, Andrew, I, I think Brexit is actually very bad news for Putin, really, you know, and this idea that the Russians supported Brexit is a complete. It's a complete myth, and uh, the reality is that um, you know, Brexit Britain is by far the most formidable opponent of, of, of Russia in, in Europe today. Well, um, yeah.
0: having said that, also, we are, I think, the only European power that they've actually killed our citizens yeah. with Novichok on our ground, you know, in our country. Uh, that's not something that the, the French and the Germans have had to deal with yet.
2: Yeah. Yet. At, at some point. And uh, we have a few minutes for uh, questions from the audience, and uh, so I've got uh, a number of hands. I'm going to take the... I'm going to take the... Uh, yeah, we do have a microphone. So the gentleman in the back first, and then the, the, the la- lady in the middle, and then gentleman over there on, on, on this, this side. So. Uh,
1: good morning. J.P. Hogan. Um, I want a question mark on the end of your uh, title. Because of Bill Clinton's history, seems to be he wanted autocracy and planned succession, set up his wife for presidency. So I'm also wondering with Clinton, when he studied in England, did he study how to try to bring America to a different form of government, away from our democracy?
0: (laughs) No, I wouldn't have thought for a moment that the the Rhodes Scholarship had... uh, had uh, autocracy for America on on its uh, agenda now.
2: Thank you very much. (laughs) Uh, We'll we'll take the next question over here. And uh, it's interesting how how the Rhodes Scholarships are now under fire as as well. And um, the Rhodes Statue has been under fire at, at Oriel College, although it's still going to be be remaining there. But, but so many US politicians have actually benefited from Rhodes scholarships, politicians of all races. Yes, and of course the other thing is
0: that although people want to pull down his statue, they're perfectly willing to use his money. Yes. Um, nobody uh, nobody has uh, nobody's sort of offered to give any of that back.
2: Yeah, <laughs> precisely. Yes, uh, go ahead.
1: Good morning, Natalie Leo. I'm a foreign affairs writer at Voice of America. And uh, two questions. One, if Washington takes a softer stance towards Beijing, do you foresee the UK necessarily follow Washington's uh, quote-unquote example either out of the concern or consideration of uh, alignment or out of the need or desire not to stick uh, its own neck out? That's question one.
0: Can I answer question one first? Because I'll forget question two if, you, um, if I don't know. Uh, um, I think we have actually been a bit um, tougher um, over Hong Kong for obvious historical reasons. Um, we are on the verge of, um, the Foreign Office isn't, but Parliament is on the verge of describing the uh, Uyghur um, treatment as genocide. Uh, which the United States isn't uh, ready to do yet, I don't think. And um, there are are areas we've been a a bit uh, tougher also on the um, telecommunications giant uh, Huawei. Um, And so I think that although we, of course, can't decouple from American policy towards China, and we've seen from the way that the Australians have been treated by the Chinese that, that they are a vicious power when it comes to feeling that they've been crossed. Um, I think that, um, so far, the, um, the Boris Johnson ministry has been, has been pretty good with regard to China. Sorry, your second question.
1: A second question uh, concerns NATO. Uh, can I hold it? Or I hear the echo so much. Um, I, um, what's uh, the UK's, um, how do you see the UK's role evolving in current day NATO? Is the UK itself preoccupied with COVID and with, uh, um, um, post uh, Brexit? Is the UK still holding up its role, uh, vigorously within the NATO? Thank you.
0: More than more than vigorously post Brexit, because of course, um, a, as we don't have uh, close economic ties, as close economic ties with the um, European Union, we still have very important security uh, ties with the vast majority of countries. Um, and so, if anything, actually, we I think are going to be better um, NATO allies because um, because that's it, it's it's really NATO that's kept the peace in Europe. We must forget this ridiculous concept that it's the European Union. It isn't, it's been NATO since 1949, which of course predates the European Union apart from everything else. And um, my only uh, real concern is that, um, is that we're still expecting American taxpayers to pick up the tab for for NATO essentially. You know, you have some countries in Europe, um, Italy, uh, Liechtenstein's another one, um, I think the Spanish as well are pretty low, who, who are paying you know, 1.1% of their GDP to NATO, whereas American taxpayers are, are having to, to pick up the tab, essentially, you know, 4.4% sometimes. So, so um, Britain, I'm pleased to say, is at the 2% uh, level, but that's only if you slightly cook the books. And uh, include stuff like intelligence and and pensions and uh, for for war widows and things like that. That's not real, you know, cutting edge uh, fighting um, expenditure. Uh, so uh, so my sense is that the best way for Britain to be a uh, a really um, active leader in in NATO, which it wants to be, is to stump up um, a bit more cash. And uh, we've we, we have you know there is a there is. An enormous amount that is uh, knocking about, which uh, is being misspent, I think, in this country, in in Britain.
1: I have. Sorry. Oh, uh, I,
2: I think we'll probably move on to the next the next question. Thanks. Thanks very much, thank you. Yeah.
0: Um, thank you so much. I'm uh, Aaron Koveva I used to be with the McCain Institute. Uh, very interesting. Uh, Uh, topics. Uh, I apologize for coming in late and maybe disturbing the lecture, but our metro or tube is not as good as the one in London, so (laughs) unfortunately. My question uh, is about the future of the United Kingdom, uh, specifically thinking about Scottish independence movement and seems to be fueled a little bit by Brexit and kind of resentment towards Boris Johnson maybe in the way he's handling things. So can you talk a little bit about that? Where do you see this going? Yes, I think that um Scottish independence uh, has been fueled by resentment about one thing or another for a very long time, um, including, obviously, Margaret Thatcher in, uh, in, in the old days, you know. I think that the Scots um, tend to resent there ever being a Tory um, Prime Minister in the first place, and so when there is, they, um, you get increased numbers for, uh, for independence. When it actually comes to it though, finally, Whether or not they really want to break up what has been historically one of the most um, successful unions, political unions of any two countries in the history of the world, I wonder. Um, When they recognise that they could wind up, even if they are allowed into the European Union, which isn't certain, there's no reason, for example, why Spain should want to encourage Catalonia by letting the Scots uh, join. uh, but, if they, uh, but even assuming they did, why would they want to become a, um, a small satrapy of a gigantic European superstate rather than be a valued and important um, partner in a very successful power? It doesn't make any sort of sense. But then, you know, these, um, these um, arguments uh, sometimes north of the border don't make much sense.
2: Should mention that she, Stephen Groves is our Margaret Thatcher fellow.
1: Uh, thank you, and thanks for uh, speaking at Heritage today. And I uh, look forward to uh, reading your book. Um, but the, the central premise of the book seems to be that the America, you know, broke away from uh, George III and England
2: uh, not because they had legitimate grievances, but because they could. And um,
1: you know, that's exactly, of course, not how it's taught uh, here in the States. Um, and so I'm wondering if it's your contention that, you know, the protesting against the Stamp Act and the long list of grievances in our Declaration of Independence were merely pretextual.
0: Yes, the, um, the Stamp Act was intended to raise between 40 and 50,000 pounds, um, which uh, f- from the 1.9 million uh, America, non-slaved Americans, uh, was a tiny amount, sort of like two, two shillings and sixpence per person per year, every penny of which was going to be spent in America um, uh, protecting, uh, protecting Americans. Uh, so as far as the actual taxation issue was concerned, it was um, uh, the the American colonies were amongst the freest in the world, as I mentioned earlier, m- amongst the lowest taxed, They were paying something like 2% of the taxation in Britain at the time, Uh, virtually no bureaucracy. Uh, You had some 17 people in Virginia, and I think about 40 in South Carolina, who were paid by the king, who were administrators and and, uh, bureaucrats in the entire province. Um, And yet you wanted, quite rightly, it was the right moment for historical development of America to become independent. And therefore, you know, this is a very pro-American book, in fact, um, and uh, and I think it makes, as I mentioned earlier, it makes America, you know, all the more exceptional a power. In the, in the sorry, the, of the 28 um, clauses, the American Declaration of Independence is one of the most beautiful documents, beautifully written documents in history. Uh, it's Shakespearean and in its language, it's sublime, it makes you feel proud, that opening third of it makes you feel proud to, to be human. And then after that you have the two, next two-thirds with 28 charges, uh, only two of which actually hold water. Um, the, uh, the, the There is a lot of ex post facto rationalisation, there's a lot of, of things uh, accusing the king of things that uh, every uh, British monarchs since Elizabeth the had been uh, guilty of in America. Uh, there are some things that are just completely invented. There's the tr- there's the clause about um, taking people across the oceans for trial. Not a single person had been taken across the ocean for trial in the whole of George the first, uh, George the reign. Um, but those two things that, um, that are true, the one about taxation in the 17th uh, charge, And the one about um, Parliament having the right to veto American legislation—the twenty-second charge—in and of themselves justify the American Revolution. I go into this in great detail in uh, Chapter 13, which I think you'll enjoy. I hope.
2: Uh, Thank you, Professor Leconte. Thanks so much, Uh, Joel. I
1: got it. thanks. Uh, Joe Lacani, Director of the uh, Center for American Studies here at Heritage. Thanks so much for coming, Andrew Roberts. You write these beautiful volumes faster than I can read them, so congratulations on the book. <laughs> um, I want, As an historian myself, I'm curious to know King George as a, not an absolute monarch, but part of a constitutional monarchy. I don't think that's kind of widely maybe understood or appreciated on the American side. What, what would you say uh, is the sort of cultural, political debt that the Americans owed to that constitutional uh, monarchy tradition? That I'm, and, and, and part of that question would be, was King George reinforcing the revolution of 1688, the Glorious Revolution? Is he reinforcing it or is he undercutting it in some way uh, with his rule?
0: He's very much, very good question, he's very much reinforcing it. He sees William III and the Glorious Revolution as being, um, as being the, something to revere. Owing to the fact that it creates the limited monarchy and the constitution gives him an enormous amount of power, of course. Um, although I noticed in the uh, H- uh, Harvard Law Review last April that, um, in fact, George III has fewer powers than uh, the American president, the imperial presidency today. Um, but uh, nonetheless, he, he did have he, he did have huge powers, and um, and so that you have the fascinating situation that he clothes himself in the um, Glorious Revolution, uh, the mantle of those, uh, of those revolutionaries, who, of course, ultimately brought his family to the throne, um, whilst the founding fathers were doing exactly the same thing. They very much wanted to be seen as the heirs to the revolution against Charles I of 1642 and James II of 1688. And so, um, so in order to do that, you have to, in the Declaration, attempt to make George III out to be a kind of Stuart absolutist style of monarch who believes in the divine right of kings and so on. But clearly he didn't believe in the divine right of kings, he was a Hanoverian monarch and he was in no sense an absolutist. Uh, so you have these two, uh, two people, two sets of, of um, people who are fighting one another for the, uh, for the sort of right to be seen as the heirs to uh, 1688.
2: Uh, in fact, I think we have time probably to, for just, um, well, let's take these last two questions. So uh, so Bob Moffat and Halladale. Uh, Hella yeah. <coughs> good morning, Bob Moffat. I'm a
1: senior fellow here at the Heritage Foundation, and I admire everything you've written. I'm halfway through Napoleon right now. Thank you. In any event, um, uh, there are British troops right now in Poland and there's a lot of tension in Eastern Europe that I
2: think a lot of Americans are not paying attention to. Uh, what I would like to know from you
1: is this, looking over the horizon,
2: how do you see
1: Poland as a power in Europe evolving?
0: Yes, well, I mean, it is under, under severe threat deliberately from uh, Lukashenko, who obviously does want to use these um, refugee crisis as a way of putting pressure on, uh, on Poland, either because he's a puppet of Putin's or for his own reasons to try and get the EU to lift these sanctions against him. And uh, it strikes me, therefore, that Poland is on the Uh, On the front line, both geographically, obviously, um, but also uh, sort of metaphorically, on the front line of the uh, of the great struggle against um, against Putinism, and uh, and I can't see that changing any time soon. I think it would be a disaster if these um, refugees from Syria and elsewhere, uh, some of them from Afghanistan, um, are allowed over the over the wire and into Poland, because then you're going to cause have the most atrocious um, social um, problems in Poland, and, um, and those could get very nasty very soon. You know, there is a strain of Polish nationalism which will not put up with that, frankly. Uh, so, um, so it strikes me that now is the time to be full square, full square behind Poland. I think NATO's got to do that. I think the, the way in which the British have uh, been putting troops in there is, uh, is uh, admirable. Uh, and I'd like um, lots more countries to um, to do it too, because um, you know it is it is totally you know frontline state.
2: Very well said, Andrew. Last question, uh, Hella. Yes. Uh,
0: it, it strikes me as being absolutely bang on the money. We went through the five stages. Uh, we, in a way, fortunately, uh, we could get through the denial stage very quickly because of the Suez crisis. And um, you uh, then you have anger, which uh, which you did get with the uh, Conservative Party almost splitting in the 1950s. Um, the um, the the each of the stages comes. You get uh, we fortunately did manage to get to acceptance um, after the Falklands War, um, because uh, because there was a, a marvelous sort of moment where we were pro- proven by Margaret Thatcher not to be. a uh, a completely uh, sort of wet and weak power. Uh, We had the capacity to stand up for Britain's, in some places, of the far-flung empire. But frankly, um, we went through all of those five stages between 1956 and 1979, and it was not a happy time, Um, especially in the 1970s. And I pray, I pray America doesn't have to do that. And it's not difficult not to. You know, it's not as though it wasn't a deliberate um, throwing away of an extraordinary opportunity in Afghanistan. You had not lost a single American dead soldier in 18 months, and yet you lose 13 in one day because of the botched operation. Uh, forced on the army by Biden. It's an extraordinary story. It's something that historians will be racking their brains over how it could ever have happened um, hundreds of years from now, I believe.
2: Thank you very much. I'm going to unfortunately have to um, bring our event to a close, we've run out of time. And uh, Andrew has been a tremendous wide ranging discussion from George III to to Joe Biden, to, to Brexit, to Meghan Markle. We've covered practically everything uh, today. <laughs> and uh, we, we do have a, a few uh, books available for, uh, for signing uh, outside. Uh, and um, uh, and a, a huge thank you to everyone who's joined us in person and, and online. We have several hundred people watching online today. Thank you very much uh, for, for joining us. Uh, our next uh, event for online viewing is, is uh, our event with the UK Home Secretary Priti Patel which will be uh, this, this Friday, uh, 11 AM uh, US time. Hope that uh, many of you can join us for that discussion as well. And Andrew, wish you all the best with your book tour uh, here in the United States. Uh, and, uh, and I think this is, a, you know, this is an incredible uh, book. Uh, it's going to have a very big impact. And uh, wish you every success with, with the launch of your book here in, in the US.
0: Thank you very much indeed. I, uh, you're going to have a treat with Priti Patel. She's, she's fantastic. I think uh, a future leader as well. And um, so somebody who I think you'll, uh, you'll really enjoy listening to. And I've um, hugely enjoyed today. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you very much. <clears throat>